Hello, my name is Eva, and welcome to part two of the short and sometimes deadly history of the folk. Last time, we left off as Catherine de' Medici, the Queen Mother of the French King Charles IX, unsuccessfully attempted to use etiquette and forks to stave off the rising antagonism between the warring branches of the royal house and the religious wars during France's restless decade that was the 1560s. Elsewhere in the 16th century, the folk had witnessed even greater upheaval as empires fell and others rose. The folk was no longer a feature of the royal house in Constantinople, for that city had for a century been the capital of the Ottoman Empire, and though the Ottoman court initially maintained some of the cultural traditions of the bygone Byzantium Empire, the folk was not one of them. It remained as a stable in the old Greek families, but Arab cuisine, with the use of pita and fingers, increasingly became the norm. Now, were we to find ourselves in that age and be able to step into a horse-drawn carriage waiting for us just outside those sturdy walls of Constantinople and order our carriage to drive west? we would find that the folk had spread from Florence all across the Italian peninsula, and we would discover that to possess and master the art of eating with a folk was now the standard to which not only the nobility, but the wealthy Italian merchant class aspired. From Italy, we might drive on to France, where, as we explored last time, the folk had been introduced to the royal court in 1533 and had many admirers, but it still maintained a great deal of enemies. For example, Michel de Montaigne, the French Renaissance philosopher, wrote in the 1590s that while he had used forks, he did so only occasionally. And famously, the 17th century, Louis XIV, the sun king of Versailles himself, was not enamoured with forks and continued to eat with his fingers throughout his life and absolutely prohibited his children's tutors to teach his children to use the fork. So the fork was neither widespread nor in regular use, and it had hardly made an impression in the Duchy of Normandy on the north coast of France. And just across that narrow body of water which separates the European continent from the British Isles, well, there the folk had in the 16th century hardly made any substantial inroads into the table habits of the British. French Huguenots fleeing to England during the mid-16th century did bring with them eating habits, which included forks. However, this was regarded as distinctly foreign in England, in an era in which Englishness was being cemented and defined. King Henry VIII, a manifestly English king, was not a proponent of the fork, he deeming it an effeminate object 
as, indeed, men of an earlier medieval age had done. His daughter, Elizabeth I, who was crowned Queen of England in 1559, she too harboured low opinions of the folk, deeming it a peculiar habit to spear the meat on offering. It was the 17th century English writer and traveller, Thomas Corriott, who is credited with introducing the use of a fork to a wider English audience, when he used it in front of guests in 1611, after having picked up the habit during his travels around Italy. However, far from being old, his contemporaries laughed, and the derivative nickname, Forkifer, meaning fork-bearer, came to mean weak and feminine. A few decades later, it would be Charles I of England who would publicly endorse the fork and make it popular among his courtiers. But the fork enjoyed only a few years of popularity, for Charles I would see himself and England embroiled in wars against the bishops, against Scotland, against his own citizens during the 1640s. And for his part, this would end at the Palace of Whitehall on the 30th of January, 1649, when King Charles I was beheaded for treason against the state of England. As the Commonwealth of England was established, all affectations associated with royalty were cast aside. Those frivolous fancies of fork and feather will thrive no more. That was the intention, but it did not quite work. Plenty of parliamentarians still used their forks. And well, twelve years after Charles's execution, his eldest son was crowned king as Charles II, and he brought with him all manner of French customs, and the fork returned with a vengeance. It was again all the rage to eat with fork. It was popular for eating and still quite popular for stabbing. But it was also increasingly becoming a precious item, with lead, silver and the occasional gold fork being mentioned in wills and bequeathed to the favoured. Until now, the evolution of the use of forks had been driven by its legitimization by a prominent member of a royal court, as happened in France, or by the transformation of a regent's cuisine, as it happened in Italy. And so again, in the 16th century, it would be the import of new foods, which would once again elevate the usefulness of the fork in Western cuisine and sugar would pave the way. The ancient Greeks had known of sugar, or sweet salt, as it was called, from writings received from Indian kingdoms of the 3rd century BCE. But in Europe, sugar was first produced on any large scale from the late 14th century, when the Flemish traders and the kingdom of Castile set up sugar presses in Netherlands and on the Canary Islands, respectively. When Cristoforo Colombo, or as we know him, Christopher Columbus, 
sailed for the New World in 1492, he took with him sugarcane seeds, and as they grew, enslaved people were set to work on sugar plantations in the Americas, giving the Spanish Kingdom and later the British Empire access to their own extensive sugar mills. And this made the import of sugar suddenly far less expensive than the import from the Arab world as had been the norm until then. With this, sugar was used far more generously in cakes and small sweets, which were picked off a plate with small dainty forks. These habits coincided with the emergence of coffee houses in London and the Salon in Paris, where men in the former and a mixed group of aristocrats in the latter would meet to debate current news and philosophical questions. In these surroundings, coffee was served with sweetmeats and sometimes cake, cake eaten and offered with a small fork. And as coffee houses were frequented by men from all walks of life, the use of forks gradually spread out across to larger populations, including those who in the 17th century would cross the Atlantic Ocean for a new life in America. For the fork came to America by way of the Puritans. And traditionally, Governor Winthrop of Massachusetts is credited with introducing the first ever silver fork to the newly established Puritan community in Boston. Winthrop himself hailed from a wealthy family from East England who resided at Groton Manor in Suffolk. His was a comfortable childhood and youth spent in part at Trinity College, Cambridge, a college which even then attracted foreign students who were in the habit of using forks. And perhaps Winthrop may have witnessed its casual use in this setting or he may have seen it at table at one of his acquaintance's houses, Lady Arbella Johnson, who together with Winthrop was one of the wealthier passengers aboard the Arbella, which sailed for America in the summer of 1630. It was in June of that year that Winthrop was said to have publicly partaken of a meal using a fork. But that fork-aided meal was judged in the harshest of terms, as a vain habit and a sacrilegious act against the wishes of God. As an amusing side note, Winthrop would go on to have quite a few quarrels with his fellow Puritans, with Winthrop accusing them of adorning their houses with far too decorative woodwork. Evidently, Decorative woodwork was, in his opinion, far more frivolous than a silver spoon. But I digress. While later churchmen of the Puritan community would argue that the fork, by its very shape, caused the eater to put less food in their mouth than the spoon, and therefore promoted modesty of manner, it would be several decades before the settlers in America were swayed by these words. But isn't it interesting that there it was, 
attempt at vindication springing forth from religious circles. Six hundred years after churchmen had been the first to condemn the folk as a devil's tool. It was, in fact, not until the late 18th century that the folk found its way to the tables of the American elite. And in America, folk users maintained the older European custom of holding the fork in the left hand to pierce the food and then switching it to the right hand to lift it up to the mouth and eat. In Europe, this custom fell slowly out of favour during the latter half of the 18th century, and by all reports, it has also more or less fallen out of disuse in America. I was in New York and San Francisco a few years back, and I did not see anyone eating like that in any establishment where I enjoyed a meal. But back in Paris in the 17th century, the French salons of the Enchant Regime were frequently hosted by a woman of note who in her private chambers would serve coffee and sugar-coated pastries and provide small silver forks with which to eat these highly sweetened cakes. For the hostess and for any female participant of the salon, the elegant handling of a fork could for a few tantalizing moments reveal the sensual skin of a woman's arm, as writers of the age also commented on. One might assume that the use of forks in such environments as the coffee house and the salon, where people of the Enlightenment socialized, contributed to the fork's acceptance as an object of common sense rather than a devil's tool. It might have been a case of proximity bias, as it were. This new, elevated status as an object used by the enlightened carried it into the early 18th century, as houses began to be built with sumptuous dining rooms, rather than great halls with a dining area. For these rooms, people of wealth started to buy sets of silverware as opposed to earlier habits where guests themselves brought their own cutlery. And in these sets of silverware, the fork was a central feature, for its very shape allowed for intricate engraving, and the fork would feature the sigil or coat of arms of the family, this becoming ever more popular as the burgeoning middle classes sought to emulate the nobility by having family coat of arms visible anywhere and everywhere they might catch the eye of a guest or an onlooker. At this point, the fork was still a long, flat object with two sharp prongs, which, if you have ever tried eating with such a device, can easily injure the tongue. One might imagine that dinner hosts sought to reduce the risk of guests getting bloody wounds at the dinner table. So that, and the increasing variation in food served, drove the evolution of the fork forward. So it changed in shape, gaining three or four additional prongs, which were softened and slightly bent. This shape was not only practical, but it also caught the candlelight better. And this delighted the Georgians, who in the 19th century went mad for silver and candlelight. 
as the number of dishes increased, so too did the number of forks, with an astounding 54 fork variations deemed necessary in the early 19th century. It was an agonizing show of breeding to know how to use the different forks. And of course, the discerning guest might hold the forks daintily in their hands, all the while assessing the weight of it and thereby determining whether the host had provided real silverware or mere coated silver which became available during the 1850s. At the very end of the 19th century, forks and customs fortunately simplified once again in many parts of Europe. But the fork still carried an image as an object of the wealthy and the would-be rich. For in factories, spoons were the norm, far better suited for the thin soups served. That was the situation in the industrial cities of late 19th century England. But in other parts of the world, soups remained a mainstay evolving from the simple meals of peasants and labourers to the delicious meals that we might recognise today. Such was the case with borscht, for example, which originated in the Ukrainian area around the 14th century as a simple meal for peasants, but by the 17th century it had spread westwards towards Eastern Europe becoming a meal of the nobility in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. In these regions, while the fork did become an integral part of table setting, it was the spoon which had central place, and it was the spoon which was most engraved and most beautifully laid out to eat those delicious soups. In the 21st century, Forks are now a staple of the Western table and eating tradition, but globally they are rivaled by chopsticks or traditions where eating with fingers is still the norm, from the simple to the intricate. When I was researching for this podcast, I looked up the pricing of forks, and interestingly, the price of forks in high-end brands is nearly always slightly lower than the spoon. I found no contemporary explanation for this, but it seems that the spoon's more global use, its presence at breakfast, lunch and dinner worldwide, makes it a far more sought-after tool and therefore slightly more expensive. But it also takes us back to the beginning of this exploration, in which the spoon was the norm from the Yangtze River to the Thames with the fork making its entry as choices became more varied, from berries to pastries, and a local cuisine became more influenced by foods from other regions, like maize in China, rice in England, and tomatoes in Italy. The rise of the fork in the Western cuisine was never a linear one. As late as 1898, British sailors refused to eat with forks, deeming them unmanly. Yet it is interesting to note that the integration of the fork mirrors many other historical progressions, in that individuals played a part, 
but so did happenstance and chance, as well as geopolitical disruptions and considered choices. The history of the fork was neither direct nor directed, but a culmination, a clear break, a sudden thing, and a convergence of similar processes. The history of the fork is history like many other events. I hope you liked this episode. If you did, please consider telling one of your friends about this podcast, Restless Times in History, as it really helps the podcast grow. Until next time, I have been Eva, and thanks so much for listening.